Well, living things grow. That is a profound statement, isn't it? I know you're just scratching your heads. How did I ever figure that one out? Um, well, you're thinking, what did he do all week? Uh, <laughs> um, but living, living things grow. Living people grow. Living trees grow. Living mold grows. Uh, living viruses grow and spread. It's just, it's a, it's a truth. Living things grow. Kids go to PetSmart on Saturdays with their parents and they walk through the aisle and sure enough, the little pet adoption group is there and there's these cute little snuggly lab puppies. And what are they? Mommy, daddy, can we please, please, please have one and take it home? And what's the problem though? <laughs> Those little snuggly lab puppies turn into big rambunctious lab dogs. And and the living things grow. There was a story this last week about an alligator in um, that had been kept in a Los Angeles home since the 1970s. Uh, <laughs> Forty years ago, some guy had the bright idea that it would be really cool to have a little pet alligator. <laughs> but little pet alligators turned into really big. Uh, pet alligators. I think the guy's name was Cecil. I don't remember for sure, but <laughs> ask Cecil about his horse sometime. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and some neighbors of this man, they spotted, they thought they spotted an alligator through the fence of his backyard. And so they called the police. The police got a search warrant and they came and they found this Alligator hidden in a large crate next to two cat carcasses. <laughs> and so next, the police went around, the story says, going door to door asking people if they've lost any pets in the last 40 years. And, and so that's all connected, they think. Um, but living alligators grow large because living things grow. Well, the church is a living thing. You understand that? The church is the living Jesus's living body. Paul describes it to Timothy as the church of the living God. It's alive. The church is a living church. And, in, and if it's a living church, it's going to be a growing church. We're, 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 we're in the middle of a little mini-series, a little three-week mini-series right now. The, the, the three, these three G's that remind us just of what we're supposed to be about as a church. This is kind of like our hitting the reset button or hitting, hitting restart uh, at the beginning of the year for us to remind us what we're about. I know with computers now, I'll go for weeks, sometimes months without ever shutting my computer down. It used to be at the end of every day, you'd turn it off and come turn it back on this, the next morning. But I'll, I'll have all of these applications open, and it's just slow, and it's bogged down, and so much going on that I'm not even sure of all that it's doing. So every once in a while, like, ah, I should just hit the restart here and start over again. And this is kind of what we're doing in this little series. It's what, what is the church what is the church and what are we to be about as a church? What are the basic core elements of church life and ministry? And so we are using it, this little uh, way of saying it with these three G's. We, we, we're to gather together, we're to grow together, and we're to go together with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so gathering, growing, going. Our love for the Lord com- compels us to assemble together on the Lord's day in obedience to Him. And we come and we gather and worship the Lord together. And our love for one another, it, 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 it stirs us to, to build one another up in love. And, and we do it through the application of God's truth to our lives in the context of loving relationships. This is what we're talking about today in growing together, a growing church. And then our love for the lost, we'll see this next week, it compels us to to, to take the gospel across the street, around the world. Um, and so, a gathering church last week, today, a growing church. And we, as we get to this, we're really getting to why we do what we do as a church. Do, do, you, do you understand that? I mean, it is. It's easy for me, even as a pastor, to forget this. Why do we do the things we do? Why do we have Sunday school classes? Why, why do the youth go away to winter camp for a weekend? 
Why do the ladies plan? Why are they planning a retreat? Why are they about to start meeting on Tuesdays for Bible study? Why will the men meet tomorrow morning for Bible study? Why do we have a wana? Why small groups? Why Eatsy? And why record sermons? Why have a Bible institute? Why? Why do we do these things? Do, do, do you do you know? Um, well, we're going to see this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll just focus in verses 11 to 16. I wanted Eric to read it in its context. But we find the ultimate goal for all of our ministry in the church. It's right here. This is, this is essential for us to get. And, and let me just walk through where this fits in the context of Ephesians. And so let me, we'll just kind of camp out here and so you can write on the back or whatever if you want or just listen. But this is what's going on in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapters 1 to 3, you have Paul just extolling the glories and explaining the, the, the wonder of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, that God devised a plan from before the foundation of the world He devised a plan to save his people. And that plan centers on the person of Jesus Christ. And namely, his death and resurrection and exaltation. He he died in our place for our sins on the cross and he rose from the dead. And so that's what the plan centers on. And through Christ then, by faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we we have been redeemed from sin and we've been reconciled to God. And so we have, through Christ, and because of that relationship, we have a new identity. We are, we are, we are new creatures. And and not only that, we have a a new relationship to one another, and we've been formed into this temple, this spiritual temple in which God indwells us with His Holy Spirit. The church. And so that's Ephesians 1 to 3, though. So then we get to chapter 4 of Ephesians. And Paul begins this series of exhortations based upon that new identity that we have. And so you look in verse 1 of chapter 4. You see how he begins. Therefore, in light of all that's been said, and I've written to you already. Therefore, in light of the gospel, in light of your new identity in Christ, in light of the fact that you've, you've been brought together, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy Of that calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner that live like you're saved. Live according to your new identity in Christ. And then, and then if you look down to verse 17, right? After where uh, Eric stopped. And in the next section, Paul, Paul's going to begin to really show what this life looks like. So verse 17, you must no longer then Walk as the Gentiles do. And so, by the end of chapter 4, you have, you have just imperative after imperative, command after command, uh, as Paul is just showing, this is what you live like, this is how you lived, and he's not going to stop at those imperatives until his little inkwell runs dry at the end of chapter 6. And so, so that's what kind of the big frame of the book. Now, where we're looking is in verses 1 to 16, in particular verse 11 to, 11 to 16. And this section forms a little a thought bridge between those two verses, verse 1 and verse 17. Before he explains what a life lived in a manner worthy of your calling looks like, he tells us how it's even possible. Because we want to know that. Oh, how, how do we possibly fulfill all of these commands? How do we do these things? How do we live like this in light of our new identity? And there's two things that he says to the Ephesians and to us. And the first thing he says, is, this is the first key. Jesus has made you one. He's made you one. He's made you into one body, one community, one church. And so in verses 2 to 6, you have... You, you have this, we were formed into this one body. Together we have one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then, so then, we need to be, he says, eager to maintain this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that Christ has secured for us. So that's the first thing. We've been placed into this one body. We've been made one. And then the second Answer, how do we possibly live like this? Is that Jesus has given us grace to grow 
and to mature as that one body in verses 7 to 16. And so you get to verse 7 to 16. Just hang with me a few more minutes here. Um, 7 to 16, you have these two long run-on sentences. The English teachers, you would flunk Paul here, okay? Um, but he's Greek, so it's good. And it's perfectly acceptable. And, and he has two long sentences. The first sentence is in verse 7 to 10. And it's this, is that Jesus has given grace to every individual believer. Look at verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's just to the degree that Christ has given. That's, that's how grace has been given to you. And that is a lot, folks. That's the biggest understatement of the morning. Uh, it's according to that measure. And then he supports that with Scripture. And then the second sentence, this is where we're getting to our time this morning. Verses 11 to 16 is that Jesus... Let me just walk through the thought of verses 11 to 16 and show you the connections, how it all fits together. First thing he says is Jesus has given gifted people to the church. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why did he give these gifted leaders to the church. Their role is explained in verse 12 with this little prepositional phrase. All right, there's a lot of grammar, I know. We're gonna, we'll come out of this in just a moment, so just track with me. He says that we, he's given these, these gifted leaders, why? For the equipping of the saints. For the equipping of the saints. We'll come back to that. And then there are two more little supportive prepositional phrases. They're subordinate to that one. And so, He's showing this is what the saints are equipped for. And so verse 12, again, the end of verse 12. So he's given the apostles, he's given gifted leaders to equip the saints. Why? For the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So he's given gifted leaders not just to do the ministry, but to equip all the saints for ministry and bodybuilding. And then that last phrase, for Building up, it corresponds exactly uh, to the final phrase in verse 16 that where he says the body builds itself up. And so together, this, this little phrase, this little, uh, little phrase, it forms this, we call it an inclusio. It's, it's like bookends or a brackets here. And, and what this is expressing is the ultimate goal of our ministry. That's, that's what, he's, what he's showing here. And then he elaborates on this, this goal, and it's expanded into these three statements, verses 13 to 16, real quick. There, there's something we attain, first of all. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then second, there's something we avoid so that we may no longer be children. That's immaturity. We want growth. We want maturity. That's what, that's the purpose of it all. No, but no longer children, but tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And third, there's something we, we then demonstrate. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body so that it builds itself up in love. Now, that's a lot. And, and, and again, that, that we could do a whole message just walking through what we did in, in I don't know, five, ten minutes there. But this is what I want you to see. What Paul, the, what Paul is laboring hard to make, and he's making a careful argument here, is that the aim of everything we do is growth. It's growth. Because living things grow. This is, this is what we're to be about. Everything we do needs to be aimed at making and nurturing disciples of Jesus Christ. Helping people to become more and more like Christ. Now, and so I'd say then, a healthy church is designed by God to be a greenhouse for spiritual growth. That's why we exist. We, he has formed the church Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, we just saw this, and he's given us everything we need, that's what we just saw, to make and grow disciple-making disciples of Jesus. That's why we do what we do. 
We're to be a, a hot house for growth, Barak. A greenhouse. And what does that growing church do? A growing church then is one that participates together with the Holy Spirit in the transformation of God's people to become more and more like Jesus. And when I say participating with the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we're being transformed from one degree of glory to, to, to another. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm paraphrasing that, but you, you can see that. So we're, we're participating with Him together, transforming God's people to become more and more like Christ. All right, so we've, we've walked through the text, we've seen its structure, and we've set it in its context. And what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning is just to draw out some, ap- some implications from this passage. This is more of just some meditations that I've been thinking upon as we've been walking through this text. I don't mean meditations like I've just been, you know, just looking up in the air. I mean from just looking at the language and the grammar and, and, and phrases and connections and squeezing this text. Just some statements that come out of here to show us about what growth should look like in the church. Now, the first one we've already stated, and so, but I, I don't want to miss it again because this is the main point of the message, really. First thing I would say is this, is that growth is the goal. Growth is the goal. The reason we do what we do is to grow and to nurture disciples of Jesus. And we have to keep our eyes on that goal. That we, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus' target. That's where we need to keep our eyes locked. I, I remember as a kid, we, we had about four years when I was in high school, my high school years, we lived in a place and had a little bit of acreage, and, and one of my jobs was to bush hog the back field. And my dad showed me how to do this and to do it well. My dad was a stickler. He loved lawn maintenance and all that stuff. So he wanted straight lines, and he wanted everything to be nice and manicured. And, and so he said, you look across the field and you, you pick a fence post or you pick a tree trunk or something and you just lock your eyes on it and you just, you don't look at anything else. You don't look at the wheels. You don't look at the ground. You just lock at that and you just drive towards it. And, and it works. I do the same thing in my back. I'm just like my dad in this way. I want straight lines. So I, if I'm cutting the grass, I pick something, a little twig, a little weed off in the distance and just walk straight towards it. And you, you get straight lines. Well, this is, this is what we're saying. We don't take your eyes off of, off, of, off of this goal, of this target. Don't get distracted. Don't. It's going to get messy and it's going it's to get ugly, but we really need to grasp and be guided by this one overarching aim that Paul calls us to, and Christ calls us to. If we don't, what happens is we can be busy doing other things, many times good things, but not the most important thing. You you understand that? There's a really helpful book many of you have read, and I've encouraged uh, many of you to read. It's The Trellis and the Vine by Colin Marshall and Tony Payne. And, and, and they, they set forth an illustration in the opening of this book, and this is the name of the book, that you have the vine. The vine is, is what we're, is, is the purpose. This is the goal. And it's to, it's to make and to grow disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our primary work. And then, then you have a trellis. And you could, again, you can see the analogy here. And the trellis is what we do to support that work. And so in a garden, again, you might have a trellis and the vine grows on the trellis and it gives sunlight and helps it grow and, and be healthy. You see, drive by these vineyards and you see these, see these things. So a trellis for the church would be buildings um, and finances and events and programs and, and websites and meetings and committees and policies and all of those things. They're, they're good things, they're necessary things, but they're not the most important thing. And, and if we're not careful, we can get so caught up in maintaining our trellises that we forget there's a vine to grow. That's the point of the book, is that trellises aren't bad. They, they can support the vine's growth. They can allow it to spread and to thrive. But a, but a well-built, well-maintained, beautiful trellis is absolutely worthless if there's not a healthy growing vine. And so... The problem that happens in churches, and we all have this tendency, and, and is that trellis work can tend to take over vine work. 
It, it, it's just the natural progression, the natural pool. And so we, we can spend more time and energy and resources maintaining the trellis, and then we end up neglecting vine growth. And so they say, one of the, just a couple lines out of the book, we, most churches need to make a conscious shift away from erecting and maintaining structures and towards growing people who are disciple-making disciples of Christ. And so I just ask, do you, do you understand that that's the goal? Uh, I forget. I confess. I mean, you get, in, you, get, you get all these applications running in the church, and it's like, wait, let's hit reset. What are, what are we to be about? Is, is that goal of making and nurturing disciples, is it the driving factor and force of your life? Is it the driving force of this church? Let me give you an example of a subtle way that we can be aimed at the wrong goal. And this one may scare some of you and surprise you. But this is, I want you to see this distinction. I I often hear this church called a Bible teaching church. I love to hear that. I really do. I mean, that if we can be known for anything, that's something I want to be known for. That's a good thing to be known for. I, I hear people say things like, I love the preaching, I love the teaching, and, and, and they talk about those things. Those comments are an encouragement to this pastor, I assure you. And, and I'm glad those things are that characterize this church. But listen, that is not the goal we're striving after. We, we don't exist ultimately... To teach the Bible. Our goal is not to see how many books of the Bible we can plow through in a year. Um, it's No, we teach the Bible to help people become more and more like Christ. There's a distinction. And so what really excites me, what really excites our elders, if you want to be of encouragement to us, I don't mean make stuff up, but we love to hear things like this, is how you're growing as a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, it's, it's through the preaching. It's through the teaching. It's through the small groups. It's through uh, these, these ministries. But, but it's, we want to know. We want to hear things like, I've grown more as a Christian in the last five years than I've ever grown in my life. That's, that just lights my jets. Um, and Bible teaching, Bible preaching, Bible study. Absolutely necessary. We better not waffle there. But the goal has to be kept in front of our face at all times. We do all these things so that people will grow to be more like Christ. And so if not, Bible study can become intellectually stimulating, but it doesn't transform lives. We have to actively keep that goal before us. So so please, don't hear what I'm not saying this morning. I'm not saying that Bible knowledge isn't isn't important or Bible teaching. I'm I'm saying it's not enough. It's not enough. We have to push past Bible knowledge onto life application so that we see people's lives transformed more and more into the image of Christ. We don't need less Bible, we just need we need we don't need to stop at Bible teaching. We need rigorous Bible study. We need to be heavy lifters when it comes to theology. But we can't have those things disconnected from your life, from your attitudes, from your words, from your wants and desires, from your relationships, from your hopes, from your behaviors, from your thoughts, from your habits. That's what I'm saying. Bible study in itself isn't enough. That's not the goal. That's a means to a goal. Seeing people become more like Christ. And so we want to labor with this intense focus like the Apostle Paul as he said to the Galatians, Oh, I, I labor as in, the, as in the anguish of childbirth to see Christ formed in you. That's what we want. That's, that's, the, that's the goal that we're striving after. Okay, I've lingered on that one enough. Next, next thing that... As we squeeze this text, just another statement is that growth is God's work. It's God's work, the growth of the church, the transformation of, of God's people to become more and more like Jesus Christ is not something that you and I can do. Wait a second, I thought you said that's the goal for which we're doing everything. No, 
This is first and foremost God's work. We're to be passionate about this work because God's passionate about this work. This is what he's after. Jesus is building his church. He's promised that. The the Holy Spirit, as I said, 2 Corinthians 3.18, is transforming us from one degree of glory to another. He's working in us, through us. And here in Ephesians 4 even, our our growing begins with God's giving. That's the that's really the you want to know who the main the main uh, character is in Ephesians 4. It's Christ. Jesus gives grace. Jesus gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. It's what he's doing to see that growth happens in the church. So it's not just something we do for God. It's something we do in partnership with the Lord. God, God begins. God's giving precedes our growing. You go back to the trellis vine illustration. We can build trellises, but we cannot make a vine grow. We can feed the vine. We can water the vine. We can plant the vine even. But God makes the vine grow. Paul made this very clear. We plant, we water. God makes it grow. This is why... One of the things that ought to characterize is we ought to be a prayer-saturated church. We're looking to the Lord to do what only He can do and, and, and transform lives. Is, is that a big part of your praying? Is, is, is How desperate are you in prayer for the spiritual growth of people in this flock, for this church? We sang that Jesus with thy church abide over and over. We beseech thee. Hear us. And there are all of these appeals to the Lord made in that song. I don't know that you recognize that earlier. But, but think back on those words and all of the things. May, may she one in doctrine be one in truth and charity. May she reach the lost to win. Just over and over, all of these prayers to the Lord for the church. Are you praying like that? Are you more inclined to complain about areas of weakness in the church than you are to call upon God to work, to grow us? So, so God, growth begins with God. Third implication that we're going to draw out of this passage is that growth is possible. Uh, growth is possible. I don't think that it's this unicorn out there, that it's this fantasy that to have a growing spiritual life and and to be a vibrant, growing, healthy church. Again, I'm not saying we're not this and we want to become this. That's not my point. Thank God for the growth that happens here and the, the greenhouse work we get to see and be a part of. But, but we want to grow more in this. And, but we say growth is possible. You think about the church at Ephesus. This is just taken from the context of Ephesians. You, you, Ephesus was not in an ideal environment for church growth and health. It was surrounded by this grotesquely corrupt culture. Immorality, sexual immorality, idolatry, magic. Um, all of these things that were right there in their face at all times. And it was also swimming in religious syncretism. You have these blending of religions. You have a corrupt synagogue. You have these pagan pagan worship practices that are blended in with with uh, Jewish worship and all of this messiness going on. You have racial tensions that were severe. Paul Paul's dealing with that here. You have the persecution of Christians that was on the rise during this time. You have all these factors in the culture and in the environment. And so he said, this is not just some idyllic kind of setting for Wow, this is where a thriving church would, should grow. We would, we would look at Ephesus and write it off as a lost cause. There's no way, no way that you're going to find this body that's just thriving and growing and people being transformed by the grace of God and, and just lives remade and, 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 and formed into to these just beautiful God-glorifying people. Say, so not a chance. But we'd be wrong. Growth isn't just possible in idyllic environments. We don't, the gospel doesn't need perfect soil conditions to take root and to grow in your life. And it's our lives. It can grow anywhere. In fact, it thrives in the harshest of environments. 
So if we if we if we can't look to the culture to determine the potential for growth, and so we can't say, well, I think that there's this much growth potential because of the environment that the church that church is sitting in, and then over here there's a lot more potential. No, that's not what we're looking to. What do we look to? We look to the power of the gospel. That's what tells us the the potentiality for growth in the church. And, and, and so I'd say the possibility for growth is directly proportionate to the power of the gospel. And in Ephesians 1 to 3, again, this is what, by the time he gets to chapter 4, this is what he's building his case upon. The, the, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, sin and death, defeated through the cross and resurrection of Christ, enemies of God now adopted as sons, warring parties have been made one. All of these things accomplished. The, the gospel has this unstoppable power to change and to transform even the vilest of sinners. And so what do we say then? Change is always possible because the gospel is, has unlimited power. Do, do, do you get that? Do, the church can, can be a greenhouse for growth even when the climate of the culture is very harsh. And very antagonistic and very opposed to Christianity. We, we, we don't have to simply be a thermometer that reflects the temperature of the culture. We can, we can, we can be people in a growing church right in the midst of a crooked, perverse generation. That's great hope to us, isn't it? And I want you to think along this lines. Think about the people who made up the Ephesian church. They came out of Awful backgrounds, most of them. They were into paganism and all kinds of twisted backgrounds and all kinds of baggage that they brought over into Christianity as, these, as they have this new identity in Christ, but old habits and old, old problems and old ways of thinking. And yet the gospel is powerful to take redeemed sinners and radically transform them. And so no matter what stuff you've been involved in, no matter where you're at right now, Gospel is powerful, and it can radically reshape your life. So don't let don't let your vision of for growth in the church, in this church, even be determined by what you watch in the headlines, by what rulings come from the Supreme Court, by any of those things. What determines the potential for growth here is the gospel. So a large vision for growth requires. A large vision of the good news of Jesus Christ, the power of that gospel. Fourth implication is that growth happens as a group. Growth happens as a group. You can't miss this in the passage. You can't get past the plurality of this passage. It's, it's saints. It's body. It's we all. We. We are to grow. Whole body. That's the language of, of these verses. The growth that Jesus gives comes to us through and as the body, the corporate body, we can't grow as he intends for us to grow alone. And so there, there's no solo growth as a Christian. It, it, there, it's not just Jesus and me. No, we grow together or we don't grow at all. It, all growth is group growth in a sense. That single members of the body, that's the image. Single members of the body, they don't grow in isolation of other body members. We grow together. Our growth and health is absolutely dependent upon one another. And just a couple things that that means for us is one, I know this is a temptation for some of you, but I would just say don't be a loner. Don't be a loner. And I, some of you, by temperament, by personality, you're, 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 you're not gregarious, you're not a people person and but don't don't let that be a cop out to withdraw from people and live life alone as some kind of hermit and i mean you may come here and you may sit here but even here you've so insulated yourself from people that you're 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 alone don't don't think of the christian life as this as coming out of your your bunker on sundays to kind of restock the spiritual supplies and then you withdraw back into isolation that's, that's, not, that's not what the picture that we have in Ephesians 4 here. You, you throw yourself into the messiness of relationships in church. And it gets messy, I know. 
Um, but but this is this is the place. This is the environment we grow. Uh, heard this illustration used. The church is is not a bag of marbles. Um, you're glad to know that, aren't you? You're not marbles, um, uh, hard-headed marbles, or something like that. No. But he's saying you're not you're not just in the same location, bouncing around each other, banging into one another. Um, you, you know, if you have a bag of marbles, you take one marble out of the bag. No big deal. You still have a bag of marbles, right? But that's not it. And the church is not a bag of marbles. The church is a bag of grapes. It, you bang them around, and what happens? The juices begin to mix together. And you can't just take one. After all that happens, you can't just take one grape out because you can't distinguish one grape from the other. They're, you're together. Your lives are, are intertwined. And so, so that's, that's, you know, don't, don't live like a marble. Um, I'll just slip in, slip out as I please, not be noticed, not connect with people. No, be a ripe, juicy grape. There you go. Um, uh, just one, one way you can put this into practice. There are sign-ups right now for Etsy. You say, what in the world are you talking about? He's speaking in tongues. Etsy is this, this, uh, this little ministry we have, um, this is part of our trellis structure, but it's, it's very supportive of the vine growth in this body. And it's, it's basically you get together with um, three other couples or singles, and you have a meal once a month for three months, and you rotate houses. And it's a great time to get involved, to know other people, to, to learn about people, and to have, have that for three months in a row, to have a meal together with Four couples, it's just it's great ministry. And so there's sign-up sheets and Sunday school classes on the bulletin board downstairs. You can see Becky Pell right here if you've got questions. And so I highly encourage you, if you tend to be a loner, this is a great way to kind of break out of that. So be a part of that. Um, all right, next thing, fifth implication. Let me hurry up here. Growth is gradual and ongoing, and I, I'm not going to linger here. I, uh, but certainly as... As Paul describes it, the language he used, the grammar that's used here, it's that it's describing not this instantaneous work. It's not microwave growth. It's slow cooking kind of growth. And it's, it's a process. And it's a lifelong process. It's ongoing. It, we never arrive. We never finish until Jesus returns. We will attain final maturity, but that day is yet future. And so there's always more growing that needs to take place as long as we're living. And so because that's true, what's more important than our current position, where you're at right now with the Lord, is, is what trajectory you are on. That's, that's the real issue. Um, don't, don't think that you have to come in here and fake it. Don't look around this room and think, man, everybody else has their act together. I need to look like I have my act together. Trust me, we don't. Trust me, they don't. I know stuff. No, just kidding. Uh, no, we don't. I'm, I know my own life. We're, this is not the, the haves. And then other churches are the have-nots. We, 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 need, we need growth. We need change. There's stuff in our lives that needs to change big time. All of us. And so this is not the place for those that have reached some heightened state of maturity. This is for all of us to, we, we're to be a church who meets people where they're at and yet refuses to leave them that way. I've heard that phrase uh, from another pastor, and that's good. Sixth, two more, growth requires the water of the word. Um, I just, just real quick, what kind of people does Jesus use to lead the church? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. You know what brings, makes them, what's the common denominator there? They're all word people. All word people. They're truth people. Why? Why does Jesus give us word people? Because we're a word-born, word-based, word-fed, word-dependent body. The, 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 the root of our identity is this common confession in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. The faith. We need an accurate understanding of the faith. And so... Um, to, to grow. And so Jesus gives us these word people to lead us. We're to be a truth-rich church. And so I'm, we're unapologetic about our commitment to, to having a word-centered ministry here. And I'm not going against anything I said earlier. Systematic, verse-by-verse exposition of the Bible. We're going to finish this little series next week, and then we'll be right back in Second Kings. 
And I'm super excited about that. Um, but Bible training, Bible institute, Bible memorization, Bible reading, Bible application. We want to always be teaching, training Bible teachers and trusting these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, Second Timothy 2.2. 2. Uh, that said, uh, Bible, Bible teaching is not the goal, but, but Bible teaching is a means by which we grow. Jesus knows this, and so he gives us word people. And, 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 and that's it again. You, you can know the truth, you can teach the truth, and you can still miss the point of it all. You know what case in point of this is? The church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. The, they were strong in the scriptures. And in Revelation 2, Jesus commends them for this. He, he, just, he, he um, says they're discerning. They're committed to the truth of God's word. That's great. That's wonderful. But you know what? I have this against you. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. So, so we need Bible teaching. We need to be a word-rooted church. But the Bible must pay, make it past our intellects, past our emotions, to the deepest part of our being, our hearts, control center of our lives, so that it affects everything about us. That's what we're after. Finally, growth produces good fruit. And I'll just reference verses 13 to 16 here. Um, I, I kind of walked through these verses earlier, so I'm, uh, what, we, what we attain by growth, what we avoid by growth, not children tossed to and fro, what we, what we manifest, just demonstrate by growth. Um, and I, I just, I don't want to, I want to finish because I've got something I want to say at the end here. So, so these are some implications to draw this text. Now, what do, what do I want to do at the end here? I just want to paint before you in just a few statements, just a vision for growth as a church here at Baraka. Now, this is not comprehensive. This is not something that fell from the sky. This is just me trying to think. This is how I'm praying for this church. I think how our elders are praying for this church and how I encourage you to pray. And this is what we're laboring after. You know, what we're not after, we're not, we're, we'll never be content with hundreds or even thousands or tens of thousands of people who come here Every week, sing some songs, hear a sermon, uh, chat with a few people, then go home and back to normal life. I am not interested in that. Uh, but I pray that Paraka will be, a, as we said, a greenhouse for growth as disciples of Jesus Christ. That our story will be just one of life after life after life after life, transformed by the gospel's power. That's that's what we're after. Do you have that view of the church, or is your view just kind of static? Are you are you satisfied if Baraka just kind of manages and maintains where we're at now? Thank God for the growth we've had, but let's just kind of hold it together and keep it from falling apart. Let's not rock the bow. Let's not try to grow people too much let's not get into people's lives and touch on things because it could get messy fast they, people might leave no do we have a large vision of what god can do here lives radically changed by christ so just a couple statements here in terms of vision for baraka's growth one thing i would say and going back to the illustration earlier that i i pray that we would have a proper view of the trellis a proper view of the trellis that, that programs and structures in this church would be kept simple and dispensable. And what, I, what I mean is that we would stay nimble. We would stay flexible as a church. And not because we've done something before and because something's served us well in the past. That means that we always have to do that. That we, we exist just to keep these things that we've done before going. And I'm not... Trust me, I'm not proposing any radical changes. That's not the point of this. I'm just saying, in general, let's keep nimble. Let's keep the trellis in perspective. It's good. It serves us. But it can be changed. It's not why we exist, to support the programs and the events and the stuff we do here and the policies and the committees and the stuff. That's not it. We exist to make disciples. And so when those things cease to serve that goal, it's okay. We just... We, we put them aside and we do something different. Serves us better in that goal. 
And we should be okay with that. And so it also means we, we won't evaluate the church's health based upon how full our weekly calendar is. So it's not the goal of mine to, to have like an 18-page bulletin that lists something that, you know, 20 activities are happening every day of the week and these, these programs and events and stuff going on. I'm, again, I'm not saying those are necessarily bad, but, but, but I, how I pray for the church and what I want to see as an indicator is, is how healthy the vine is because people are growing and changing. All right, we've said this already. Our right, second statement is that spiritual care is decentralized. Spiritual care is decentralized. This is how I'm praying for this church. That elders train people, Ephesians 4, to care for one another. Equip the saints for the work of ministry. Instead of seeing the flock as a group that the elders and deacons need to personally minister to, we, we see them as, we see the flock as a group that we're accountable for, and we need to help equip and unleash you to care for one another in the flock. That, that, that that's less staff dependence, for instance, for member care and discipleship and counseling. One of the exciting things for me that's happening here is we're seeing some of you are getting, uh, are, are growing an in interest and desire and getting trained to be biblical counselors. And that's not some badge you wear like I've, you know, taken a class. That's not... But in caring for intentional discipleship of one another. And when the stuff and the messiness of life comes up, you, you know what the scriptures teach. You know how to help people. You know how to walk alongside them, applying God's truth in the context of that relationship. That's all biblical counseling is. And so I urge you, if you're not a part of this, then talk with Jim Shawbrook and, and get on board. And we've got, got some neat things coming down the pipe, and we'll have more to share about that. But... But that, that's one thing, just less, uh, de- more decentralized care of one another. All of us have been gifted and, and released by God to care for one another. Third, and this is kind of generic, but authentic biblical community will grow here. Authentic biblical community. This is what I mean, authentic, authenticity in our relationships. Not, we don't play act. Like we have it all together. I mentioned this already. We don't put on face with one another. There's sincerity of life. And, and, and so when we, we, we share the struggles. We walk alongside. We don't gossip about those things. But we, we, we have honesty about where we're at in life. The joys, the struggles, the hard things. So authenticity in biblical community. We want, and by biblical I just mean that as as. God defines for us in the scripture how we're to relate to one another. All those one another's, again, this is a whole sermon series here, but all those biblical one another's, that that defines us. And then community, that we share life together. Biblical koinonia, fellowship. This is, that this is a shared life. We're not living as loners. So, ETSI is a great way to step in that direction. If you're not involved in small groups, uh, we have four or five, I think, that are meeting right now, and we hope to grow this ministry and over the coming years and and so but get involved in one of those and this is a place where this happens fourth two more statements there is an ever-increasing number of godly men who love and lead the church and their families we need godly growing cross-loving men god taking sinful but redeemed Men and making them righteous men, not perfect men, not self-righteous men, not fakers, not religious clones. Not what I'm talking about, but genuine, humble, Christ-loving, obedience-pursuing, God-dependent men. That's what we, we, we desperately need this. Not to, ne- to the neglect of the women. I'm not saying that. What about the women? No, this is for the women even. As... As we said this before, as the men go, so the families go. As the families go, so the churches go. As the churches go, so the communities go. And as the communities go, so the nations go. So we, we need men. I'm not talking about macho, bravado, in-your-face, chest-pounding kind of stuff. I'm talking about connecting God's truth, again, unchanging truth, to the stuff of your real life, 
in the context of relationships of, with other, other men, godly friendships and discipling older men, teaching younger men. And we, we need that to be in greater, greater supply here in this church. I'm praying to that end, and I hope you are too. And then the last thing is a tie into next week. We, we need fishermen, every one of you, fishermen, Jesus says. We need fishermen who actually fish. And this is convicting to myself, but if we're a growing disciple of Jesus, we need to be going with the message of Jesus wherever we are. Um, our spiritual growth will result in the gospel's advance. Because fundamental to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you're going to grow as a disciple of Christ, fundamental to that is that you're going to be one who's involved in making disciples of Christ. And and as as we witness, one of the things, the neat things happen is we witness the new birth of dead sinners, people born again and brought to new life in Jesus Christ and given this new identity that we've known. It just, it reminds us of how powerful the gospel is. So I'm praying that we'll just see a stream of of new converts people coming to be brought from death to life through the witness of the people in this church and baptized and brought into this fellowship and testifying to the lord's grace it will be a strengthening thing for us that's where wade's going next week when he talks about a going church and so let me pray for us here uh, father i i do pray i pray that you would Rescue us from any thoughts of smallness when it comes to thinking about um, your intentions, your design, your goals for this local church. Um, and I'm not, I have no fanciful notions of, of, I'm not talking about buildings and, and attendance and any of those things. Though I'm not saying those wouldn't be affected by this. But I'm, I pray God that there would just be an, an ever increasing um, this, this number of, of, of lives that are trans, being transformed by the power of the gospel. And so, Lord, enlarge our vision for that in this place. Let it affect how we pray. Let it affect how we think about our lives. Let it affect how we spend our Sunday afternoons. Let it affect how we order our week. Let it affect our budgets. Let it affect uh, our priorities in all things, Lord. That there would be this controlling aim of our lives. Um, to to help uh, to to participate with your Holy Spirit in in the transformation of God's people to be more like your Son, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.